Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 36. Today's guest is Warrant Officer Jennifer Davidson. Jen started her career as a medic in the U.S. Army Reserve, but soon transferred to become a psychological operations specialist. She started skydiving in college and quickly became addicted. She spent over 13 years on the U.S. Army parachute team, the Golden Knights, and has logged over 8,000 jumps. She's been on the podium many times at various World Championship skydiving competitions. She has now moved on to her next endeavor, becoming a Black Hawk helicopter pilot for the National Guard. Steady, steady, nice and steady. Light, heel, cover. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. So you better get out of my way now. So you better get out of my way now. Or I roll. All over you before I roll all over you. Ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, sounds good. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on because as we discussed before, um, I had sent a message to the Golden Knights a couple of years ago about interviewing a woman on the podcast. And Marissa was actually the PAO at the time, but she didn't know that I had sent that message. And then I ended up just getting connected with you through her. So that was kind of a neat connection. Yeah, Marissa's great. She's definitely a good choice. So where did you grow up? Uh, So I am originally from Iowa, which uh, nobody ever knows where that is. Not Idaho. It's Iowa uh, in the the middle of the country, flyover state, just pretty much in the middle of nowhere, a little town of 200 people. So it was very rural. Uh, I think we had a consolidated high school. So my high school ended up being like 150 people. So it was just a yeah, just a very small town kind of kind of place. And when you were growing up, did you have a certain something that you wanted to be when you grew up or what sort of activities were you involved in? Oh, uh, when I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. But I think that was uh, kind of, you know, like kids, they want to be a firefighter or whatever. So my thing was I wanted to be a veterinarian. But I was like pretty sheltered. Like we never really traveled. Uh, I The first time I flew on an airplane was when I went to basic training. So I, you know, I just, uh, by the time I went to college and kind of got out there, I was just like, I was just looking for adventure. So that was, uh, I guess, uh, I found it, you know, so I, I got to, I've gotten to do some cool things since then. But yeah, that was just kind of, I just wanted to get out and travel and do all the things because I really didn't really have that opportunity growing up. And so how did you find your way into the military? I was in high school when I joined. I was 17. I was a junior. So I hadn't even graduated high school yet. And uh, a recruiter came to the school and I think we did like rappelling in the gym or something like that. And like stuff like that had always caught my attention. At the time, I was still, I wanted to go to college, you know, and do like the, the things that you're supposed to do. Um, so I ended up joining the reserves instead, you know, but I was 17. I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted. So if I had maybe waited six months, I might not have joined at all. Like I, I might've ended up doing something else. So it was kind of like this impulsive thing that you do um ended up being a great decision but yeah it was it was just if I had not been at school that day like who knows maybe I would have done something completely different 
It does sound neat. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember if we ever had recruiters at our high school. I feel like we didn't, or if we did, obviously they didn't do anything cool like rappelling in the gym um, because then I probably would have joined way earlier. But that being said, so when you joined, how did you choose which occupation you wanted to do? Again, that was one of those things, you know, I didn't really know. I was like, oh, maybe I should like driving big trucks. That sounds cool. And my recruiter, uh, luckily, she was super solid. And she was like, no, you're not doing that. Uh, you're going to be a medic. And that's, uh, I had tested really high. And so she, she's like, you're qualified to do um, something that is a little more uh, in depth. Uh, so I ended up, uh, I took her advice and I, and I went the medic route, unfortunately, I guess, like I'm not really interested in medicine. So it was a great experience. It was really neat to learn all of that stuff. But uh, eventually, like as a medic, you have to like keep up your skills and do continuing education. And because I wasn't doing medical stuff outside of the army, it was really hard. It would have become really hard to like keep up on that and to make sure that I had the skills necessary to do what I needed to do. So that was when I started looking to uh, find another job course in the army there. So not that you're overly interested in medicine, but it's good to hear that you had a solid recruiter because I feel like a lot of times I hear horror stories about recruiters who are not the greatest and make some promises that don't turn out to be true. Yeah, absolutely. So to anyone out there, get it in writing. <laughs> you know, if there's anything that you want, like get it in writing. Yes, exactly. On my basic training in Canada, we had some people who had joined and because the cook trade was open, they said, oh, you can do this. And then it's really easy to just switch over afterwards and become, you know, like a diver or whatever it is they wanted to do. And then <laughs> only to find out that it's really not that easy to switch over afterwards. So you started looking for another occupation. So how did you land on, was it PSYOP specialist? Yep, PSYOP specialist. So by that time, I was in college uh, and my degree was in international studies. I got to start traveling a little bit. So I studied abroad uh, over one of the summers and I, I did some a conservation project. So the study abroad was in Costa Rica and then the conservation project was in New Zealand. Um, so I started getting to travel more and I really liked that. Um, I, you know, I'd never really gotten to do much of that earlier. So the PSYOP thing seemed like a good fit for that. Uh, I was also very interested in uh, like languages, linguistics, stuff like that. And PSYOP is not language, but there is like a tie in there. So it was kind of a a step to like realign more with, with one of my interests. So that was kind of the, the route I took to do that. So in Canada, we don't have a specific occupation for PSYOP specialist, although I do believe there is sort of a PSYOP unit, but if you could give maybe a brief description of what a PSYOP specialist does. Basically it's uh it's kind of like advertising. So our advertising for behavior, maybe, um, so when you're dealing with people from other cultures, like they, there are so many different uh, ways that cultures live and what's important to them and how, how they like make decisions. So you can't ask somebody to do something necessarily from a different culture, the same way that you might ask people from your own culture to is the, the reasoning behind it might not make any sense to them. Um, so one example might be uh, here in the United States, we're a very we tend to like judge a person on what they've accomplished and their uh, what they've been able to do with their life. Whereas in other cultures, they are more focused on 
um, who their family is and, you know, the family ties and stuff like that. So if you start trying to talk to people and convince them of things using uh, your accomplishments or like who they are, like that's not going to make sense to them. It's going to be like, you know, you need to like make your family proud, you know, stuff like that is. So it's, it's kind of like figuring out like what makes people tick and to try to connect with people through a way that they'll understand more. And how long is the training for that occupation? So it's different in the active duty. At the time I was a reservist, so I was doing the one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer thing. So for me to transition to SIOP, it was only four weeks. The active duty MOS is has a much longer school, and I'm not sure of all the details, but they get some language training and they do they do a lot. It's a lot more in depth and they're they have a lot more skills coming out of it than the course that I went through. And so with that position, did you deploy overseas as a PSYOP specialist? I did. Uh, I went to Iraq. Uh, I was there for eight months. Uh, I got lucky and I was there from October until the beginning of June. So I didn't have to be there in the, the hottest months. And uh, overall, I would say it was a great experience. I'm sure like when I was there, I, you know, you don't really want to be there. But looking back, especially like you, you remember all the good times, like the camaraderie in a deployment, something like that is something that you can't really, you can't artificially create that, you know, so sometimes you have to go through some of those experiences in order to like, understand like what that camaraderie is. And that's a pretty cool thing. I'm sure you have been through stuff like that as well. And so were there ever any moments like going through any of that training, where you really felt like it was super difficult, and maybe you couldn't do it, or you were quest- like questioning yourself on whether or not you wanted to be there, or were you just kind of pretty enthusiastic the whole time you were doing it? I would say at those points in my life, there wasn't really a lot of like questioning what I was doing or wondering if I was able to do it, anything. Now, I think I have a, a much more mature outlook to where I, I can kind of like step back and make, you know, wonder if I'm making the correct decisions. But I think I was, I was just young and enthusiastic and ready to do all the things. So I I don't really think at the time I really had that uh, self-awareness to to really question that. At what point during sort of your career did you get involved in skydiving? Um, So I started jumping. um, Like like I said, when I got to college, I was looking for adventure. (laughs) So the first two summers were those first two trips that I had mentioned. And then third summer, I was trying to actually uh, get a summer job in Alaska uh, that I could go up there just for the summer. And I thought that would be pretty cool. And I didn't get that job. So my contingency plan, what I ended up doing instead was I started skydiving. I had a skydiver in one of my classes and, uh, you know, we we uh, had chatted about that a little bit. And I had actually done a couple tandems, I think a year early. I'd done three tandems, like each a year apart, but I had never thought it never occurred to me that like skydiving was a thing that like people did. Like you did it once and like, cool, but obviously there's people that, that do it. Like that's what they do because you have your tandem instructor and whatever. Um, but it had never really like crossed my mind. So I ended up skydiving, start, I started skydiving that summer. And then I'm sure that you understand I was a complete psychopath about it. Like I loved it was all that mattered to me like for those first six months until I deployed that's all I wanted to do that's all I wanted to talk about that's all all my weekends and holidays and everything I was at the drop zone if there was a plane flying I was jumping out of it like what year would that have been 
That was 2007. Okay. So, I mean, at that time, YouTube probably wasn't as big of a thing. Like you can just go on and look up videos uh, on like how to dial in your landings or whatever else you might be wanting to learn. Yeah. And it was, uh, I still remember like we had uh, like the videographers had their own like videos that they had like compiled of the videos they had taken and stuff like that. So like, I remember you know, watching that was so much fun to like get together and like watch these videos. And whenever I hear some of the music that was on those videos, I still like go back to those videos. And I still like remember like watching them. And so when you did your first tandems, were you super nervous at all? Or just really excited to go up and seek more adventure? I was probably nervous for my first 100 jumps. Even like after I started the, we would take off and I would be nervous and the higher we climbed, the better I felt. I was really, really nervous about having to do like an emergency bailout. So like, as we got higher, I would feel better and better, but I, I, it definitely took me a long time before it was kind of like, uh, I wanted to do it, but I was also dreading it at the same time. Like it was just this weird, like mix of feelings about being afraid, but wanting to do it anyway. And and I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. So I don't, I don't know if that's just like a, a sensation seeking thing, or I'm sure somebody could uh, psychologize me on all of that and tell me, <laughs> tell me what that means. But yeah, it definitely took me a long time before I didn't have like that, that like weird kind of almost dread about, about doing it. I feel like, uh, so first of all, if my mom is listening, she can go ahead and stop listening right now. Um, but my first tandem, the guy literally had to pry me. Like I was stiff armed up against the plane and I'm like, no, like I changed my mind. I'm not doing it. And he's like, no, like we can't land with the plane. We have to go. And he just like pried me as soon as I was out. It was fine. It was just cause it was so loud when they opened the door and then I couldn't see the ground. So I didn't really know. I thought we were going so fast, but then, you know, when you look at the ground, it's like barely moving. And then, I mean, now I've got, I've, I only have 35 jumps, but I still go through the cycle in my head, like climbing up to altitude. Like, why am I doing this? I've already done some jumps, call it a day. I've gotten this far, like it's fine. And then I get up and the door opens and away I go. And it's so awesome. <laughs> and then I have to get on the next load and repeat that cycle. Yeah. Well, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So you get into civilian skydiving and then what does it look like to, I guess, try out or how does it work to become a member of the Golden Knights? Like I said, all I wanted to do, all I wanted to talk about, all I, I drove everybody crazy was skydiving. So that, that was like how I was spending my time. And then I didn't initially, when I started, I didn't know about the golden Knights. And then when I found out about them, like my brain fell out, I, I couldn't believe that there was like this job. I was already in the army. Like it was so perfect that I, I could possibly like do this for my for my living. Like if I had discovered skydiving earlier, I probably would have chosen my college based on skydiving. Like it, it was, uh, like I was obsessed with it. So once I found out about it, um, I made the decision to finally do it at like on my deployment. Like that was, uh, over, like, so over the winter of 2007, the spring of 2008, I came back in June of 2008. And then, um, you put together a packet, you have to have like your commander's approval and you have to submit like your logbook pages and, you know, basically like a, a binder that acts like as your resume, you, know, you have to have like, I think you have three different references that they can call and 
Uh, so you put this all together and you make it and then you send it in and then you get accepted to go to tryouts and they have tryouts once a year. Uh, they're kind of uh, lately, the last few years, they've uh, been toying around with it a little bit. Like they had a spring tryouts as well um, in the past couple of years and trying to figure out the best way to maybe change that system. Uh, but they will at least have just the one tryouts in the fall. So I got accepted to that tryouts. I think when I got there, I had like 320 jumps, something like that, because I had been doing nothing but jumping all summer. <laughs> and then uh, once you get there, it's two months. You don't know exactly when the end date is of it, uh, but you're jumping Monday through Saturday, maybe 10 or 12 jumps a day. You're jumping these big accuracy canopies. Uh, you're flat packing. So you have to learn to flat pack. And that is because when you're jumping into demonstrations and stuff, you pack your canopy for the crowd. Like that's part of some, like the crowd interaction that you do. So flat pack, it makes more sense to flat pack. You can have kids help you and, and do all that. So you do there. It's a, it's a very, I mean, skydiving itself and then packing on top of it. It's very physically demanding as you know, and those, the canopies are really big, the big accuracy canopies to be able to come down on that target. So they're heavy, you know, you're wearing them around and it all it all kind of adds up uh it's in north carolina so it's uh can get pretty hot it's not in the the worst part of the summer but it can still get pretty hot and then just going to altitude like it takes a toll on you like all the altitude changes and everything in the meantime you're doing you know silly jobs that they have you do like they're basically they're trying to stress you out because when you get stressed like your real personality comes out and then they can determine like if you're on a team with the same 10 people and you're traveling, you know, 250 days a year, 300 days, however much you end up traveling, like you have to be able to, you have to be a good teammate. You have to be able to handle that stress. And then of course you're jumping into places that are very high stress as well. So they want to know like how you can handle stress, like what your learning curve is when you're stressed, like how do you make decisions, stuff like that. So it's the whole thing is kind of designed to see how you handle that stress. So then once you uh, get through those two-ish months, uh, then if you get accepted onto the team, then go to the, so I, you know, packed up, I had a little Chevy Malibu and I, all, everything I owned fit inside it. So I packed up my stuff and I moved to North Carolina. Do they have a minimum amount of jumps that you need in order to apply? They do. I don't know what the official number is. I think it's maybe a hundred, uh, but it is waiverable. And so it depends what your experience is, but they will look at you as a, as a person, as a jumper, and they can waive that if you don't quite have a hundred jumps, but you, if you're ready to go. And then in terms of women on the team, like how many women have there been and what do you find? Did you find that that was a barrier when you were trying out or did you just feel like you were treated as all of the other teammates? So when I came to the team, there were there were quite a few women on the team relative to now. I think there were, uh, I, in my tryout class alone, I was one of five women that made it through. And that was a huge influx of women um, relative. So I think at the time we had eight or nine maybe, and that was, that was quite a few. Um, at, at that time, they still had the style and accuracy team, which is a men's team and a women's team. Um, they, they have since gotten decided not to do style and accuracy anymore. So there, there were quite a few women on the team. Uh, I don't know if I, 
experienced much like overt uh stuff from being a woman but i mean there's there's certainly like the 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 small stuff that like the intangible societal stuff um like i i do remember one specific time i was in my my team room and uh i was talking i was chatting with one of the one of the guys i i don't even think he was on the team anymore he was an alumni um and i was just talking about you know, I wanted to be on the competition team and that was something I was interested in. And he was like, oh, they'll, they'll, they would never accept a woman onto the team. It would just mess with the dynamic too much. And, you know, it was just, it, <laughs> I was like, you don't even know me. <laughs> like, how are you going to say, like, I can't, he, he did not have any control over that, but just that like, oh yeah, don't even, don't even try. Like that's, that's not going to work out for you. You know, stuff like that. So um, and then I had one instance, um, this would have been after, uh, I think more recently, it was in 2017 and my four-way women's team had won the world championship, uh, that in 2016, they had won. Um, and then, uh, after the world meet, the team was done. So I had, uh, some of my teammates were looking to move on to other things and grow their families, stuff like that. Um, so we were not going to nationals. Um, and then, but the, uh, there wasn't a four-way team uh, that was only a four-way team. There was an eight-way team and generally they would kind of like choose four of them and they would compete at nationals. And uh, so this year they were, you know, figuring out who was on the team. And I was like, well, I would like to be on that team. I'm, you know, I've, I don't have a four-way team that I'm going with and I am certainly qualified. And, and so they, they were very, uh, one of the guys was very hesitant to give me the opportunity to even try to be on the team. And instead he wanted to keep it a uh, eight way team internal. So he was looking at a very talented guy on the team. Um, but with very little actual four-way experience, he was experienced in eight way. And like I said, very talented. And he was like, Oh, we're going to, take this other guy and I was like no you I'm a world champion in that slot that you need like you were going to take you have to take me and so I really had to uh to kind of fight to to get the opportunity to try to be on that team and um they uh they did it finally they they I got to fly with them and then there was no question after that but they they weren't originally considering that option and whether it was, you know, they wanted to keep it team internal or I am a lot smaller than a lot of them, but it has never been an issue. So I, but I, I definitely had to fight for my, for my shot on that one. And then, so when stuff like that happens, like how do you, or maybe you do let it get to you, but how do you kind of not let that get to you and sort of, I guess, move past it? I don't know if maybe you ever really move past it, but how do you deal, how do you deal with it? Um. So I definitely think if I had been a little bit younger, I would have been more hesitant. I certainly, I'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome. And that that's certainly been something that I have been working, worked on in my life to overcome. Like, I always kind of feel like I'm faking it, you know, like, <laughs> I'm, I've got the wool pulled over everyone's eyes. Like, there's some days I hope they don't find out that I don't know what I'm doing. But I think that like, understanding that that is a, a real phenomenon. And I, I am clearly qualified to do those things. Like, so growing my self-confidence and understanding that 
people feel that way, even when it's not true, like you are qualified. That helped me have the confidence to stand up for myself and to assert myself in a situation that I wouldn't have been able to do that at a younger period in my life. In Canada, we are a fairly small military and we have our military demonstration team, the Skyhawks, but most of what they do, or I guess pretty much all of what they do is just demonstrations. We don't have the competition teams. So can you maybe explain just a little bit about, you don't have to get too into it because I know that's another thing that when I started skydiving, I'm like, okay, you just jump out of a plane with a parachute and then you land. And like, that's it. I didn't realize that there were all these different disciplines, the canopy relative work and the four ways and the eight ways and, you know, accuracy and just endless different disciplines within skydiving. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely um, when I'm talking to, once people find out like what I do, I think 50% of the time, the first thing they say is you can compete in that. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's incredible because there are so many ways that you can compete. So what I do, the formation skydiving, uh, you want me to explain like how it works kind of, or. Just like maybe an overview of the various disciplines that the Golden Knights would compete in. So the uh, the big one for the Golden Knights is formation skydiving. Uh, currently, they only have an eight-way team. Well, they have parts of an eight-way team. So right now, uh, they have a few guys that are teaming up with the U.S. team uh, from the previous year, and they're doing kind of like a hybrid because they didn't have the experience to keep the team running all by itself. So they are... They are doing that. Um, they are going to the world meet next year. And then they also have, I think they're doing some uh, canopy piloting stuff. So they're competing in that. The team used to be much bigger in that. And, you know, with the ebb and flow of the team and what's kind of been the the priority for the army, you know, that's, that's kind of affected that. Um, but they are doing that as far as competitions go. And then they've just started doing a little more like base jumping and wingsuiting and some of that like high visibility stuff that people like to watch, uh, like on YouTube, like you mentioned. Um, so they've just started kind of doing more of that type of stuff as well, which I think is a fantastic move to make. So as far as competitions go, officially, they only have guys that are doing the the eight-way project right now. Um, but uh, there's always been people that from the demo teams and tandem team that have competed outside of their their daily jobs, whether that's canopy piloting or um, we had a few guys that were interested in crew for a while. I'm not sure if they're still competing in that or not. And then uh, we've had the VFS team. Um, I was I was actually, when I before I went to the women's team, I was actually really interested in starting up a VFS team Things didn't quite pan out the way that I was trying to make them work then. Um, and I ended up on the women's four-way team instead. Uh, but they did eventually get that VFS team up and running for a while. And, and they had some some pretty decent success. Uh, it's just very hard to uh, to have the high level, high skill level required for some of that stuff um, and to keep them together for a long enough time. What is VFS? It's basically the same thing as four-way, but it's a... Uh, you're free flying. So head up, head down, uh, stuff like that. So it's, as you can imagine, the skill required for four-way on your flat four-way is pretty high, but then you have to do all of that on your head or in a sit, stuff like that. So it's super fun though. 
Yeah, I I did actually. I, I mean, I follow sort of all the different Golden Knights Instagram pages, and I did see the, I think pretty recently the, the some base jumping. I think maybe at Twin Falls in uh, Idaho there. So that is pretty neat that they're getting into that. Yeah, and it's great. Uh, we actually didn't used to be allowed to. Like, not only did they not do it on the team, but we even on our own free time were not allowed to base jump. Um, so I think it's it was a great idea to. Uh, kind of modify that and change that rule so that we were able to to do the jumps because it's such a I mean if they're going to use us as a recruiting tool like that's that's the kind of stuff that we should be doing skydiving isn't without its risks and for myself you know especially like I'm super new but I still always sort of conduct my own little like risk mitigation and how am I going to sort of keep myself safe in this sport? But in terms of, obviously, you're way more experienced, but how do you mitigate risk when it comes to skydiving? Um, so uh, it's, I mean, safety first, always. Um, so pin checks, handle checks. Uh, I, I probably check my handles in the plane 12 times on the way to altitude. It's, it's almost like a subconscious um, thing that I do. Uh, it's also, we have like safety day, you know, we, we do that like quarterly, we do water training. This is all team stuff, water training annually, uh, things like that. And then, uh, I always, you know, I, I check everything like pin checks are free. So I can, I can check my, I check my equipment every time I jump it, stuff like that. And you just, you keep an eye out always, uh, you know, complacency is, is a dangerous thing, right? So just doing whatever I can to, to stave off the complacency and, and to uh, do what I can to stay safe. I always jump with a full face. I know a lot of people don't, I always wear gloves, different stuff like that, which probably helps a little bit, but yeah, I, I, I definitely do what I can to stay safe. Do you do any swooping at all? Not really. Um, I, I, I jump a, a VK84, a Valkyrie 84, and I love that canopy, but I've never really been like a canopy guy. I've always been a free fall guy. So I am very competent on my, on my wing, but I'm, I'm not really doing any, anything fancy with it. So. Yeah. That's what I feel like, you know, cause I'm kind of a statistics person a little bit and, you know, I come from a scuba diving background too. So kind of like reading accident reports and incident reports and like, okay, what happened during that dive and what went wrong and like what the person did in order to try and fix it. Or like maybe they did some errors that way and just reading a lot of the reports. I mean, a lot of it is like very high speed maneuvers kind of too close to the ground with swooping. So that's like, I feel like I want to write a letter to my future self and being like, okay, at this point right now, I never want to do that. And people are like, oh, just wait in a few years. And I'm like, no, I think I'm good. Well, I, I think to to be really good in a competitive way at canopy piloting, you have to be really comfortable getting a little bit further into the yellow, if that makes sense. You have to you have to be more comfortable being uncomfortable than I probably am. So I mean, I know that sounds funny when we're talking about skydiving. Uh, but there's, there's definitely like, you know, I'm in the green, I'm super comfortable. And then like, I can push into the yellow a little bit, but I definitely can't go as far as the people that are really good can go. I would say that would be like canopy piloting. That would be like mountain biking. You know, there's, there's certain sports that you have to, in order to really be good at them, you have to be able to 
to push further into that caution area, your own personal caution area than I'm willing to do. And I, I've kind of like recognized that in myself and I'm okay with it. Like if I am never a world champion canopy pilot, like that's okay with me. I'm, I don't need to risk a life changing event in order to feel fulfilled for that type of thing. So over your career, do you have any, is there any one particular jump that stands out to you? Maybe a a really amazing demonstration jump you did or a competition jump or something along those lines? Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple. Um, On the demonstration side, I had the amazing opportunity to, um, when I was on the demo team, so this had been I don't remember if it was 2009 or 2010, but we were able to uh, jump into the Statue of Liberty in New York. And that was just from start to finish. That was a once in a lifetime type deal. Um, you know, we flew over New York City at 2000 feet. Like we we flew over ground zero at 2000 feet. And, you know, they the everybody did a great job in the lead up to the jump as far as making sure everyone knew that this was going to be happening. There was going to be a plane flying around, you know, downtown New York, everything like that. And, and then, but to, to see that stuff from such a low altitude and, and to be able to come down and, and jump to the, the Statue of Liberty, like that was, doesn't, it doesn't get much better than that. So that was pretty cool. Um, we also had a jump. Um, we do stadiums like football games and stuff like that sometimes. So I, I got to jump into a, retractable roof stadium in Texas, which is pretty cool. You know, when you're, when you're in the plane and you're looking down and there's just that, what looks like such a tiny little hole in the top of the stadium. And that, that's when it's like really important to like, think like, cause it feels so impossible when you're looking at it like that. And then you, you know, but then I think about, it, I'm like, I know how to do that. I know when I get under canopy and I'm all your training comes back to you. And like, so it's, it's not like, so what I end up doing is like, I'm just going to put a pin in that feeling for right now, because I know that I know how to do it. And then when I get down to where I actually need that training, I know that it'll be. And then uh, on the competition side, oh man, I've, I've had, I've gotten so uh, lucky with some of the locations that we've gotten to jump into, but I would say my, um, one of my most favorite competitions was the first nationals competition that we won bronze. So it wasn't even one of my one of my wins, but it was the uh, the first time that an all female team had ever gotten on the podium at nationals. And uh, it was a really tight race. Uh, there was a another team there that was a kind of a part time team, so they weren't a full time team. So it was just as important to them. And I think it would have been the first. Uh, part-time team to make it on the podium as well and we were like neck and neck and I think we maybe even had a jump off or we were tied going into the last round maybe um and then well we ended up winning by one and it was uh, that was that was one of the like very cool competition experiences that I've had as well um and then location wise uh we ha- we've had a couple uh, competitions in Dubai. So landing on the Palm Island. And I mean, that, that kind of stuff is always super surreal and just jumping into places like that. And thinking back to when I was a little baby skydiver and like, not, you know, where I'm going to, where, what I was going to be doing in 10 years and that kind of thing. It's pretty cool to think about. And so how many years did you spend on the Golden Knights? I was there for uh, just under 14. 
And during that time, like, is that all you're doing or are you doing like other military, you know, like maybe PSYOP stuff as well? Or is it, it's just strictly jumping? Pretty much uh, you're just jumping. Um, there is uh, an element of, because we, we do carry our MOSs, our, our military jobs with us. So if if there are medics on the team, they have to keep up their, their medical qualifications. Uh, we have a professional development classes that you have to get as you go up in the rank system. So you have to maintain, um, you know, if you get promoted, you have to go to that professional development class. And so depending on what your job is, like maybe it's a different length of duration of time. Um, so you do have to do that type of thing. Um, I had to go to airborne school. <laughs> so it's not actually a requirement to get onto the team. Um, and I think that they don't focus on that quite as much anymore, but at the time it was, you could get to the team, but eventually you would have to go, um, go to airborne school. So I, I did eventually go, I think I had 1500 jumps when I, when I went. Um, so I had to spend three weeks learning how to fall down and, <laughs> you know, I ended up getting five static line jumps out of it. So is that uh yeah how bad are those landings on the those round you know they're not my favorite (laughs) um it's not as bad for me um i'm a little bit smaller of a person uh but i'm you know i'm jumping the same canopies as the guys that are 250 pounds so it's probably (laughs) probably a little worse for them um i at least had the luxury of i wasn't worried about the actual getting out of the plane part uh like a lot of people are um having that most people have never jumped before. Um, but it was just, uh, it was just all the falling down. (laughs) You just have to, you fall down for two weeks straight and then they finally let you jump out of a plane. So I'm just looking at my question list here. So I was reading your biography and you have like several degrees. Is that something that you did through the military or is just like a personal development thing for you? I'm really just a glutton for punishment. Like I, I have all these like random interests everywhere. And I, yeah, so I just, uh, <laughs> I, I just like get a crazy idea that I'm going to do this thing. And then I, I get, I just do it. <laughs> so it's, it's probably not the most um, streamlined approach, right. To uh, I guess self-development or whatever, but I guess I, I'll just like come upon something and, so my first degree is international studies. I have a minor in Spanish with that. And then uh, I like kind of like got into computer programming a little bit on my own. So that I ended up getting a, a degree in that as well. I started working toward my master's and then I decided that really wasn't something that interested me, that particular degree. It's on hold right now while I'm in flight school, but uh, I am actually working towards my um, engineering degree at Embry-Riddle online. So. Uh, yeah, so I'm just a little bit all over the place, but uh, I figure if I am enjoying a thing, I might as well figure it out. So but I do the same thing like with hobbies. When everyone was stuck at home, you know, in 2020, all that, I started doing some woodworking. So I've got like a pretty decent little home shop that I can make stuff in. And uh, I decided to get into like ham radio stuff. So I did some research into that and I, you know, got some equipment. So I haven't gotten my ham radio license yet, but uh, maybe that'll be something that I, once I get done shoving all this uh, aviation knowledge into my head, maybe I'll start working on that again. So I kind of like jump back and forth into whatever interests me at the time. And then when I I kind of like to go at something like really hard and then 
I'll like burn out. <laughs> That's kind of my MO is I'll, I'll do something really hard and then I'll maybe, oh, okay, I'm going to take a little break with that and I'll move on to something different and I'll come back, pick it up later, stuff like that. So. I, yeah, I totally understand you on that one. I feel like I'm the same way. I need to like retire or find a job that allows me to do all of these various hobbies every day because sometimes I'm like, you know, I don't understand people who just kind of don't do anything. Like they come home and they watch TV or whatever. I'm like, no, like there's so many things that I want to be doing, but just not enough hours in the day to do them. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah. And there's so many like cool things to do out there. Like, so yeah, I, I definitely kind of try to just go after it. But yeah, the the school, th- <laughs> I'll just like get a crazy idea that I'm going to do this thing and sign up for a new degree program. So. Okay, so this is kind of a random question that I've asked a few of my other guests, but have you ever taken the Myers-Briggs personality test? I feel like I maybe have, but I couldn't tell you like what the results were. Right? Yeah, I'm just curious because I feel like there's a lot of similarities between a lot of the women that I interview and I almost want to like start finding out and like make a make a chart to see if there's a trend. That would be interesting. If you if you do that, let me know. I'll take it. I'll take another one. I'll let you know my results. But too, with the uh, the subset of women that you're kind of talking to, it makes sense that there would be a lot of similarities there. And so going back to, you mentioned you're in flight school. So what made you want to become a pilot? So obviously I've always been interested in aviation. Obviously skydiving is very aviation adjacent. You're in airplanes all the time. Like you're on the radio, stuff like that. Uh, I actually got my private pilot's license back in 2010. And then it was just, it was, I wasn't flying enough to like keep up with, like I just, with my schedule and how much it costs and everything like that. So I, I let my currency lapse in that. Um, that was fixed wing. So I'd always kind of like been interested in like the idea of going to flight school for the military was always like kind of there in the back of my head, but I already had the best job that I could imagine. So it wasn't really something I ever really considered. And then uh, the Golden Knights actually went through kind of a transition where they were focusing a little bit more on recruiting. Um, and they, at the time I was the only woman on the team. And they had decided that because I was the only woman on the team, they were going to take me off of the competition team and put me onto the demo team. I wasn't done competing. You know, I wanted to do that. I was kind of salty about how, you know, my my skill level of what I was doing didn't matter. Like they, they didn't take any of that into consideration. You know, I was one of, I think, three world champions on the team in its entirety at the time. And none of that mattered. It was all just like, oh, well, we need we need women to go out and be talking to women, which is true. So it felt like a good opportunity to maybe take take steps in another direction that I'd always kind of been interested in. So I looked into, you know, maybe going to flight school, like what that would take. It was uh, the timing was was good because I was almost too old. <laughs> um, I needed an age waiver uh, to be able to get in, but I was still at an age that was not crazy to waiver to get that waiver for. So I I ended up when my packet went through, I was 36. It's like 36 isn't crazy right now to get a waiver for, but maybe 37 would have been. 
Um, so that was the timing was really good for all that. Uh, so I signed up to take the SIFT, uh, which is the kind of test that you have to take to qualify to go to flight. So it's the very first step if you want to go. So I did that and I got my packet put together and I uh, got accepted. So I full steam ahead, you know, so I, yeah, I got off at the time I was when I had made it onto the team, they had created an AGR position for me. So that is a, an active guard or reserve position. So I wasn't active duty. So I had to like do a bunch of administrative stuff to get off this like active duty kind of position to go back into the reserve so that I uh, could have my reserve unit send me. You can't go as an AGR in an AGR position. You can't go to flight school. Um, so I had to find a reserve unit that would was, you know, that I could interview at and they would take me and then they would send me to school. So it's, it's kind of took a long time to, I think the process started in September of 2021. And I got to, uh, moved to Alabama to actually start school just this past January. So it was a long process, uh, but I'm get to fly helicopters every day now. So it's, it's super, it's super cool. And I, I am glad that I, even though the route that I took wasn't my own design. I'm glad that I, that I was able to, to make something out of it that I'm, that I'm really happy about. And so when you're applying for that, do you know in advance what type of aircraft you're going to be flying? So when you are in the, uh, the national guard or the reserves, you do know, because you have to, uh, you have to, a unit has to accept you. Um, you have to get a letter of acceptance for that. I'm not, Actually, I'm not 100% sure what it requires for the National Guard to get in, but you, so I already know what unit I will be in. And because I know what unit I will be in, I know what aircraft I'll be flying. Uh, for the active duty guys that go through, they do not know either their unit or the aircraft that they're going to end up with. So when you start a Common Core, everybody learns to fly on the same training helicopter and then they get ranked based on their grades and the PT test and all that stuff. And they, they create an order of merit. And then based on your order of merit and uh, a little bit luck of the draw, what aircraft are available for your, um, cause there's uh, we're going through with commissioned officers and warrant officers. And so what aircraft are available to your class for whether you're a warrant officer or a commissioned officer, then that you get to choose based on that that order of merit and your rank in the class. Yeah. In Canada, when you apply to become a pilot and then go to, I think it's like their phase one, the same thing they're common, they all learn to fly fixed wing. And then, so they don't know at the time, like they could be really hoping that they're going to fly a helicopter and they could end up flying like the C-130 or, you know, some sort of other like fixed wing aircraft that's afterwards, then they find out, which I think is kind of, I guess you're really like taking chances on it. I know they probably all have there are certain aircraft in their mind that they really want to fly. Yeah. Yeah. Typically uh, most of the people in my class do have something that they, that they want to fly. Some of them are open, a little more open to whatever they want to fly, but yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, it's a good way for, to encourage people to put the work in, you know, if they, if they really want this specific aircraft, then if you put the work in, you're going to get it. So you just have to put that time and that effort in and do the work and then you can you have better chance of getting, getting what you want there. And so what's been the hardest part of flight school so far for you? 
So I am doing really well academically. I am putting in the work. Uh, It helps that right now my husband didn't move to Alabama with me, so I'm living by myself. Um, And I really only have to take care of myself right now, which is uh, a little bit of new, you know, that's not typical. We've been married for, uh, it'll be 10 years in October. So that's given me the opportunity to kind of like do what I need to do there. Uh, But the flying is not as, uh, it's not coming as naturally to me as it does to some people. And that's, you know, some people just, it takes a little bit longer and, you know, you get like a certain amount of hours here and you just have to make the most of it and uh, know that you're going to get there, you know, and it just try not to get frustrated. So yeah, the, uh, the, the actual flying I wish was coming to me a little bit quicker, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting it at exactly the pace that I need to get it and no faster. And I would like it to be just like a little bit faster so I could relax a little bit. I just had to, uh, check ride today. We have a P1 and a P2 check ride and I did I did well on it, but 3 days ago I didn't know if I was going to do well or not, you know. So it's just kind of it's it's hard because you can't really do anything more on your own to be better at flying. Your skill level is where it's at and you can you can, you know, go to the sim, but it's not really the same. You can visualize, which I which I do. Um you can do that stuff like the the academics, you can put the work in. If you put the work in, you're going to do great. But for flying, you just, you're going to, you get there when you get there. So that, that part's been a little tricky for me. I feel like some of it, you know, just from talking to you, you probably, you come across as someone who like might set high standards for yourself. So it's probably like a little bit of that maybe coming into play as well. Like you said yourself, you know, you're not probably where you should be, but just not where you would like to be. That's certainly been, you know, coming in as a relatively older student here. That is one of the benefits, I think, is that uh, I think like when I was younger, excellence seemed like something that just happened to some people and it didn't happen to some people. And then like as I went through the experience of being on the team and we trained and competed and won at a world level, you know, like you kind of like realize that like, no, you you can be the best at something. You can be the actual best at something and you can be at a very high level. Like it's kind of on you. Like you can, it's not just something that happens to you. It's, it's something that you, it's, it's, it's your habits. It's what you do. It's how you conduct yourself, stuff like that. So knowing that, like going into this flight school thing, that, that was my intent. Like I'm not, you know, this probably sound kind of funny, but I'm not trying to past flight school, I'm trying to be the best pilot in the world. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to be the best pilot in the world. You know, I, I, I'm not even the best pilot, not any, anywhere near the best pilot in my class, but going in with that mindset is going to help me succeed to the best of my ability that I can. And then, so with all of these hobbies and, you know, a busy job and everything, how do you balance that with the requirement to stay fit for the military? And what do you do to stay fit? I used to be really into CrossFit. I absolutely loved it. Um, I like Olympic lifting. I like the gymnastics part of it. I, I was never super strong. Anything that doesn't have like weight classes, I'm not really going to be super competitive in that. Uh, so I, I love that. And I was spending a lot of time at the gym and I was, that was probably at my at my peak fitness at probably 32, so maybe like five, six years ago. 
And then now I am just trying to get to the gym a couple times a week. I still kind of, I don't do CrossFit per se anymore, but I kind of, I kind of approach it the same way. I try to, you know, go in and do squats. And then I try to do like a Metcon type thing to where I'm, you know, getting my heart rate up and breathing hard and uh, getting uncomfortable with that kind of thing. Um, So like right now I'm trying to do that a a few times a week uh, to varying success. You know, sometimes I have more going on in a week. I too, like, because I'm trying to do really well in school, like I, when you, when I'm feeling like that, that pressure to like get home and study, it's, it's really hard for me to take an hour, an hour and a half and and go do something else and and not like, I I have like a, like a guilt kind of thing. Like I, so I I definitely need to probably get a little bit better balance, uh, especially now that I've got the flow of things, how things are going. And I, and I kind of know what to expect a little bit more out of, you know, the academics and the the check rides and stuff like that. So now that I know a little bit more of where I need to be with that type of thing. So I, I should be able to like get a better balance with that. But um, yeah, those first um, month, two months in flight school, I really didn't have a very good balance because I was just trying to keep my head above water. So it was pretty much if I was not in school or sleeping, I was studying like for the for the first month or so. So Yeah, I feel I feel like sometimes there are times like that where it's like you kind of need to throw balance out the window, you know? You know, you're trying to study and then it's like, okay, if I go do a workout and then like fail something the next day, is it like, oh well that's because I didn't maybe spend enough time studying or or whatever that might be. Yeah, it's hard because obviously your physical fitness is so important too. Like, and you really should have that balance. But I I try to, you know, keep a good mindset about it. Like, I know I'm not the strongest that I've ever been right now. And like, that's okay. Like, I I have these other priorities of things that I'm trying to work out. And I know, I know how to get there. So I know that when I kind of like get everything situated, that I can get back to that place. I'm not worried about that. And like, knowing kind of too, like when your priorities in life are a little bit different than they have been once, like understanding different phases of life and, and what you kind of like, it's okay not to be at your best at everything all the time. So I I try to keep that in mind too. So you mentioned your husband earlier. Is he also in the military? He was, he's retired now. So he did, uh, he was actually, he was on the team as well. He did 27 years in the military and most of it was on the Golden Knights. And uh, yeah, I was just going to ask how you balance being a service couple and were you ever stationed apart from each other? I guess you are now, but in the past, how did that work? Uh, yeah, so we um, we had like a pretty great uh, situation uh, for a long time, both of us being on the Golden Knights. Um, he was on uh, for a time, like he was on the eight-way team and I was on the women's four-way team. So a lot of our travels were together. You know, we would both be going to the same competitions um, I think I traveled a little bit more because there are more four-way competitions than there are eight-way. So we kind of, you know, had to work our way through that, especially as a, a new couple, young young couple. Uh, but we're both of us like very independent people. Like we have a great relationship. So it's it's not really been an issue anywhere. And then uh, the last few years on the team before he retired, we were actually on the eight-way team together. So once the the uh, women's four-way team was done competing. Then I moved over to the eight-way team. And so that was great. You know, we, we 
got to carpool to work together and we got to jump together all day. And we both have like a, a pretty relaxed personalities um, to where, like, I know for a lot of people that probably wouldn't work, but like for us, like it, it did work for us. And so we were able to do that. So it was a, it was a great being down here now. Like I think he just came down for family day uh, like last weekend um, so I hadn't, I hadn't seen him for like two months. And so that was really good to see him, but yeah, you know, you just pick up right where you leave off and we talk a lot on the phone and yeah, we, we have like a great thing going on. So, and we know it's short term too. So that that's helpful. How much longer will you be on this course for or be down there? Uh, I should be down here until maybe around March next year. So then at that point you'll be sort of a fully qualified pilot or do you have more training to do after that? Once I graduate from flight school, I'll be, it's kind of like, I'll be qualified, like at a lower level. Um, then once I get to my unit, uh, the aircraft that my unit has is actually slightly different than what I will learn down here. So um, I'll be flying Blackhawks, but the model will be different. So I'll, once I get to my unit, I'll have to do like kind of a little transition to get there. And then I'll start working on getting through some, it's kind of like uh, what you would go through to get your A license how you have like all those tasks that you have to check off and be proficient in. Uh, so you have like, I'll work my way through, through all of that until I am fully qualified. And then you start working on becoming a, uh, a PC or a pilot in charge. And yeah, there's, there's always more, always more stuff, uh, always getting better. And it's kind of too, like you learn a thing here and you can't just learn it and take the test. And then like, all right, I'm done with that. You got to, once you learn it, you are responsible for knowing that for the rest of your career. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a lot, it'll be a lot of work, uh, but unlike the medical side, this is something that I'm very, very interested in and, and excited to be, to be a part of. So when it comes to skydiving, will you still skydive recreationally or do maybe competitions on the civilian side? I am, I am hoping to do that. Uh, there is a pretty good, uh, competitive skydiving presence where I live. And, you know, part of that is the team's presence there, the Golden Knights presence there, but the, uh, the drop zone there, the non-military drop zone there has a pretty good presence as well. Um, so that would be probably have some type of role with the U S team is a pretty big possibility there. Once I get done, um, I still don't know really, uh, now that I'm in the reserves, like I'll have to come up with like my reserve life, you know, I've been active duty for so long, so I, I'll kind of need to figure out what I'm going to do. So, but there's a, there's a pretty good chance that coaching will be a part of that and, uh, and skydiving. Uh, so once I'm done here, I'll be able to pick up skydiving, pick it back up and, and hopefully keep competing. What would be like your most important advice that you would give to someone new getting into skydiving? Um, well, I would say uh, learn everything you can, uh, listen to everybody, and then like kind of uh, try to, people are going to have different ways to accomplish the same thing. So try to understand like who has been around for a while and who has the experience to be saying what they're saying, but listen to everybody, try everything. Like you don't know what you're going to uh what kind of discipline you're going to find yourself in. Like some people are very drawn to the instructor side and some people are drawn to com competition stuff and, you know, other people are drawn to wingsuiting and stuff like that. So you kind of don't really know there's something for everybody. Right. And so like 
trying to like figure out like what like really makes you tick, you know, there's, there's that. And then, um, always stay safe. Like if you're not having any fun, like what's the point just staying safe for sure. So if you're, if you're getting hurt and you're not jumping, then that's, it's harder to stay current and then it's harder to stay safe. And so it can kind of like be that, that snowball. And then, um, Maybe if you are one of those people that likes to push a little farther into the yellow, like maybe take a look at that and, and see like what you're doing and see if you need to back it off a little bit. And then my final question that I always ask everyone is what advice would you give to women looking to join the military? I have two things that I would say. So the first one would be not to self-select. If you want to do something, there is a way to do it in the military. It's not going to fall on your lap but you go after it and let somebody else tell you no. Don't be like, oh, that'll never happen. They'll never go for that. So be the squeaky wheel, like keep bugging people until you can, there is a way to make things happen. Um, and then my my second piece of advice would be not to, uh, I guess like, so like I was able to, like I, I've had a really great career in the military you know, I was able, like, I, I'm a world champion skydiver and that, but it, like, I'm not special. Like, I don't have like these extraordinary skills that, oh, you don't have them. You can't do that. Like you can, you just have to decide to go and do it, you know? So there's, there's a lot out there that people keep out of their own reach. It's not out of reach. It, you know, like there's, there's nothing special about me. Like I don't have any, any special skills. I don't have like an extraordinary intelligence. Like I don't have any of that. It's, it's just the only difference is that I just reached for it and, you know, I, I reached for it until I got it. So those would be my two pieces of advice. Awesome. How many jumps do you have now? I've just over 8,000. Wow. That, <laughs> that's, you know, I'm like, Oh, 35. And just think of those numbers. It's like, well, you have to have 35 before you have 8,000. So well, thank you so much for your time today, and I'm very excited that your power didn't go out and that we were able to have a nice full discussion here. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is maybe important to talk about? Um, the Definitely the last bit that you asked, like that is uh, something that when people always ask, what's your, what's your advice? Like those, those are two things that it's cheesy and, and uh, cliche maybe or whatever, but I guess it is for a reason that it's do it's totally doable. You just have to try to do it. Thank you for listening. The biggest way to help support this podcast is to leave a rating and review on your Apple podcasts and Spotify apps. You can also visit my Instagram page at shoot like a girl podcast to see photos from the guests, keep up to date with the podcast and find out about any merchandise releases.